0: You're listening to Highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Mitch Horowitz. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation.
1: I've always considered myself a believing historian, and in fact, most historians of religion are actually believing historians very frequently they emerge from the congregations that they're writing about, whether new religious movements or traditional religions. This is true of the Kabbalistic scholar Gershom Sholem. It's true of people who have written probably the most important biographies of more recent religious figures like Mary Baker Eddy or um, uh, Joseph Smith, a Mormon prophet. Although historians don't frequently acknowledge being believing historians because they feel that it might seem to compromise their capacity for critical judgment. But my impression is different. My impression is that actually being in proximity, very direct proximity, sometimes long-term proximity, uh, to the nature of the philosophical, religious, ethical, therapeutic movements that you're writing about can heighten your critical acumen. Uh, It can also heighten your sympathies, which is important for the historian as well. So I really began my career, I suppose, uh, as a seeker, and um, it led me to want to document metaphysics in history uh, and in practice, and that that has occupied my time now for, I guess, fifteen or so years. One always must make a declaration of outlook at some point or another, and and those who don't declare outlook aren't fooling anyone. You know, the outlook comes through. Now, the the, the difficulty in covering recent religious figures is that we live in a world where we get to see how the sausages are made, so to speak. You know, every religion is based upon some sort of supernatural claim at its base. But when those supernatural claims are tucked away into antiquity, no one is very concerned about the veracity of them. When those supernatural claims are more recent, questions of veracity are are brought to bear. In in colonial America, you you had a a nascent government that was sponsoring the slave trade that was destroying the Native American civilization. And while all that was going on, you also had a fairly remarkable degree of religious liberty. And so you had people from the so-called old world, you know, crossing the Atlantic and coming over to the, the U.S. colonies so that they could pursue their beliefs without harassment. And and many did, many did. You know, there were instances of mob violence. There were in, instances of mob paranoia, the most infamous of which, of course, was the Salem witch trials in the 1690s. But what was extraordinary about Salem is that horrible as it was, it was the exception. There was not a witch craze, for example, that spread across the United States as one did across Europe for centuries and centuries. While there have been instances of mob violence and persecution and there are problems and crises, by and large, the United States, going back to its colonial period up to the present, has been a relatively friendly to religious experiment and has proven a kind of springboard for uh, new religious movements around the world. The term Satan or Satanism in the Western world is incendiary. It instigates, it, it triggers, and um, it, it may be a term that's irredeemable. I'm not, I'm not really sure, but I've determined to find out. And we'll see. We'll see how my experiment proceeds. My contention is that an esoteric, a very legitimate esoteric reading can be made of satanic tradition in the West going back to scripture and that the the force, the energy that came to be characterized as the satanic in the Western world uh, has very often uh, proven from Genesis 3 onwards to be a force of uh, usurpation, reformation, revolution, anti-heroism, non-conformity. During the very period of the satanic panic and it's very important to note this because I think it, it's, it's a foundational part of why a satanic panic developed as it did uh, in the US during the very period of time that these grossly false accusations were being spread in the media, courts, law enforcement. You had authentic abuse scandals playing out in two pillars of mainstream cultural life, the Boy Scouts of America, which has recently declared bankruptcy in order to protect itself financially from survivor lawsuits, and the Catholic Church, uh, within which there are more than uh, 20 uh, organizations or parishes that have likewise declared bankruptcy, either in response to or for protection from a survivor lawsuit.
0: I'm interested in this other aspect of your writings, which is about the um, positive mind meditation and how we can, Mm -hmm. you know, really promote that. You were talking there about, you know, repetition and it's not a confirmation. And so many things that we might repeat to ourselves that we believe about ourselves aren't true, but they Mm -hmm. become settled. They do become true because we, we create this rut in our mind. Just... Tell us a little bit about your discoveries uh, in terms of positive thinking and, and how that changed your own outlook and biases in your own mind.
1: Sure, uh, I wrote a history of the positive thinking movement called One Simple Idea. And it's funny in a way, you know, I mean, the the manner in which I approach the positive thinking movement is not dissimilar from the manner in which I approach uh, Satanism as as a as an authentic religious or esoteric tradition and that is that I felt strongly that there was something more there than had been uh, properly framed uh, Within most historicism, you know the positive thinking movement here in the United States Sometimes it'll get called the power of positive thinking the law of attraction the secret manifesting You know, these are some of the popular names that circulate and the truth is most serious people whether you know in the arts or in journalism or in academia what have you most serious people are 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 brought up to think of this stuff as being squishy trendy shallow unserious you know it belongs on a refrigerator magnet somewhere but there can't really be a serious philosophy there that thoughts are causative and that if you think something it comes to pass and sure maybe there's some psychological benefit to it, but there are too many buts to even take seriously there being a positive thinking movement or a positive mind movement. The purveyors of positive thinking philosophy did an enormous amount to open up the public mind to new possibilities about how we view ourselves and I'm not prepared to say that in their insights uh, they were they were wrong. They had sublime insights and they also, it must be said, did a better job of popularizing themselves than of refining themselves. So we wind up with this perspective in some new age quarters, for example, that all of life is subject to one mental super law, sometimes called the law of attraction. And my contention is as somebody who's sympathetic to these thought movements, that point of view is insufficient, is, is unhelpful, is unverifiable. But that doesn't mean that it needs to be dispensed with entirely. We can pursue questions of thought causation without buying into a kind of absolutism that can't be supported in the experiences and the self-verifying efforts of sensitive people. I'm trying to get mainstream folks to see the Positive Mind Movement as a greater, more substantial movement with a greater claim on serious people uh, than they may have understood. And I'm trying to get people within the positive mind movement, within the new age culture, with whom I'm in very close contact, to not settle into a kind of new age orthodoxy or doctrine of their own and let this movement, which William James called the religion of healthy mindedness continue to grow. You know, the movement needs a theology of suffering. The movement needs to acknowledge issues that are unique to our times, like end-of-life issues, the movement needs to acknowledge uh, global pandemics or national disasters or civil wars without hemming itself into this impossible position that everything is attributable uh, uh, to thought alone, whereas indeed we experience many laws and forces of which thought is one aspect.
0: You talk a lot about the mind as God, and I was wondering if you could uh, explicate that and also distinguish that use of God from like a more, I don't know, Abrahamic notion
1: of God. That's a wonderful question. One of the contemporary religious figures who's most meaningful to me, who I have a tattoo of over here, is a man named Neville Goddard. He was a British Barbadian uh, mystic who uh, uh, spent most of his life uh, in the United States, died in 1972. And um, when I first started writing about Neville, he, he wrote and spoke under his first name. Uh, when I first started writing about him, wow, I guess going back to 2005, he was a completely obscure figure. Uh, he had died in relative obscurity. His books were available, but in a very, very small number of places. And I've since watched as Neville has become one of the most popular new age thinkers of our time. And if you throw the name Neville Goddard into Google, uh, you'll be amazed at the vast number of references and lectures and writings that come up. And Neville was a uniquely compelling figure. I think um, there's so much that could be said about him. But the simplest way of putting it is his teaching uh, was, in essence, your imagination is God. That everything that you see and feel and experience, including the words I'm speaking right now, is you uh, pushed out into the world. And he contended that everything that we experience results from our own emotionalized thoughts and mental images concretized into reality. And so again, you know, if one follows his teaching, uh, it would fall upon the uh, the viewer, the listener to consider that there is no Mitch here. There's no Mitch speaking. Uh, this is you, the individual. This is, I'm merely a figment of your thoughts pushed outward. And it just so happens that you were ready at this given moment to hear these ideas and I'm just a, a a vehicle for that. I'm one of your own mental pictures. Neville had that ability to make an audacious statement and to defend it. And I, I I've written that I think he also created the greatest mystical analog to quantum theory. Now, a lot of people and I'm sure a lot of people listening to this the minute they hear, you know, quantum theory, you know, they feel their blood pressure, you know, starting to starting to rise cuz some people feel like uh new agers have cherry picked and hijacked very complex ideas from quantum theory, rendered them very simplistic, so on and so forth. I would ask for patience. I would ask for patience. I think there is a really very legitimate conversation to be had between serious students of physics and serious students of metaphysics. And that conversation is emerging and it is going on. It's not always stereotypical, it's not always caricatured. You know, I think most mainstream folk who care about such things. Uh, need to be more patient. They're too quick to judge uh, the new age or cherry picking through quantum theory and making believe that perspective is somehow this force and they feel very frustrated that that's a cheapening of complex ideas. The truth is most people who are frustrated with that are uh, if I may say bloggers and journalists. I mean they're not scientists themselves. The scientists themselves uh, very often tend to be uh, vastly more Um, approachable, patient, and astonished themselves at what 90 years of experiments in quantum theory have have brought to bear on on the human psyche and on human awareness. And I think Neville, if one is looking for a spiritual voice that expands upon and drops really extraordinary questions into uh, this mix, uh, he created the most elegant spiritual adjunct to quantum theory without having intended to. That's also what's remarkable.
0: And you said there, yeah, there is a mystery. I don't, you know, I guess it's just love and we don't know how we tap mm-hmm. into it. And so when you mentioned, you know, when those things are gone or perhaps, let's say you're facing a difficult moment or or grief, or, a loss or, or something when you know, when you need to summon those things, what do you turn to? What or who or is there a thing you say to yourself? I know this is private, but-
1: No, no, it's, I welcome it. I, I do believe in visualizations, affirmations, uh, prayer. I do believe in trying to establish relationships with different deific forces. Uh, I think our ancient ancestors uh, were were onto something in, in that respect. Um, I, I'm very interested in the uses of affirmations, visualizations, mental suggestions, prayer during a period of time known as hypnagogia, which is the very relaxed state that you enter into just before drifting to sleep at night. You enter into it again in a slightly different way just as you're coming to in the morning. The mind is in a very supple, very suggestible phase at that time. Uh, my contention is that these things are not just a psychological or cognitive exercises, but that there is an extra physical uh, quality of the mind, which can be very elusive and very hard to track, but um, but I do believe that quality is there, and I do believe it, it it asserts and presents itself in different settings and 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 frameworks. And so I think these exercises, as such, are spiritual exercises, and by spiritual I mean extra physical. Who's to say? You know, where this dividing line. Uh, begins and ends between personality and essence, between attachment and non-attachment, between worldly and temporal. You know, isn't it all really one thing? And I think sometimes people get torn in two on the spiritual path because they feel this intense hunger for something that they may want in their lives, whatever that may be, whatever that may be. And sometimes they're told, well, you know, that's illusory, that's samsara, that's that's, uh, maya, that's Uh, illusion, attachment is the source of suffering, and so on. And I would say, verify these things for yourself. You know, be very, very brave and be very, very determined. And when someone tells you that the source of all suffering is attachment, well, that's a hallowed idea. And I respect the emergence of that idea from Vedic culture, from early Christian culture. I respect it. But I would also challenge the individual to apply and verify it in his or her own experience.
0: We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you so much for listening.